Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. In this episode of Your History, Your Story, we'll be speaking with Enrique Rick Prado, author of New York Times bestselling book, Black Ops, The Life of a Shadow Warrior. Rick, who was born to a middle-class family in Cuba, was 10 years old when his family sent him alone to the United States to save him from the abuses of Fidel Castro's Marxist regime. Rick's parents, whose property and business had been confiscated by that regime, would not be able to join their son in the United States for eight long months, during which time Rick lived in a Colorado orphanage. Once reunited with his parents, he and his family quickly embraced the United States as their new home, settling in Florida. Rick will be sharing many exciting stories about his life and 24-year career with the CIA, where he operated in the shadows at various locations in the world during the Cold War era and the age of terrorism. Rick eventually achieved the rank of CIA Counterterrorist Chief of Operations the CIA equivalent of a two-star general. This is Rick's story of incredible dedication, patriotism, and courage. I'd now like to welcome Rick Prado to our show. Welcome, Rick. Thank you, James. It's a pleasure being here. Well, I'm very excited to speak with you because I have recently finished your book, Black Ops, The Life of a CIA Shadow Warrior. It was a riveting book. I absolutely loved it. And I couldn't wait really to speak with you and have you tell us some more about your story that is behind this book. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mitch. Good. So I want to start with the beginning. You were born in Cuba, correct? That's correct. Yes. Yes. And you had sort of an, an interesting childhood. <laughs> Uh, far more interesting, I think, as far as uh, adventure and uh, really all sorts of some calamities and adventures right off the bat. Could you tell us about your earliest memories in Cuba, what it was like and, and what happened? You know, my, my dad was always amazed at uh, how much I remembered. He lived with us for the last five years of his life here. And he always used to tell me, how could you remember that? You were only X age, you know. And the reason is that these were not typical times. You know, I don't remember playing in the playgrounds. I don't remember riding my bicycle down the, the, uh, the, the town. I remember when the guerrillas hit my house the first time, you know, right in front of my house, they hit the, a target just down the street and the firefight and guns going off, you know, an automatic weapons going off about a foot and a half in front of my face. And I'm eight years old. So, uh, and seeing people wounded and seeing the, you know, the damage and everything else. So that, that started that uh, acculturation, for lack of a better word. What followed was even worse because communism took over. When Castro took over, he flipped to communism like this. Within six months, my dad, small coffee roasting company was uh, confiscated. Persecutions were there. I was wearing a uniform to school. Um, we had to... Uh, going to the field, I'm nine years old, nine and a half, when he took over. Yeah, I had to go to the uh, farmer's uh, hutches to teach him how to read and write. 
It was all part of that militarization of and separation from the family. And then what followed, of course, was the persecutions, the uh, the reporting. You know, every every city block had uh, somebody that would keep track of what, who was coming, who was going. And probably the 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 hardest memory was uh, when we were going to moving to Havana to start our exodus. As soon as we turned into the main avenue there, there were three guys hanging from trees with signs that said "Contra Revolutionaries." Oh no! So it's it's a pretty you know pretty drastic change for a kid that was living happy riding bicycles and horses to you know to this kind of craziness. Now, your dad had this business, so would you consider he was maybe middle class at that time? Yeah, d- dad was middle class. Uh, he, uh, in, in 59, when Castro took over, he had a 57 Pontiac. He had a, a Jeep and a deuce and a half for work because of this coffee thing. Uh, we had a telephone and a TV in the house, so that's pretty much middle class even in America. Mm. So when Castro came in and things started to change, what would happen to people of your father's economic level, were, were they affected in any way? Yeah, I th- everybody was affected. Um, you know, obviously, there, there's that minority that feels that they're being vindicated for whatever reasons. Obviously, uh, the, the, the well-heeled people, a lot of them left early because they had the resources and they probably already had money in the United States and everything else. But for the average middle class working families, because uh, my mom and dad worked that, that business together, you know, 24-7. We all took a hit because everything was, you know, privatized. Everything was made part of the government. It was, you know, uh, confiscated is the word. So, uh, yeah, the tsunami was felt throughout the whole island. Yeah. And in the book, you talk about getting your family, getting a little bit of a warning from another, I think, a family member who was actually on Castro's side. How did you get that tip off? And then what happened? You know, it's... um, Blood is always thicker than politics, I would like to think. My dad had a cousin, Manolete, who was one of the guerrilla platoon leaders, for lack of a better word, in the Escambray Mountains, which is right where we lived. And he showed up at our house, middle of the night. I woke up, and he was with two other guys. And he sat, it was my mom, my dad, and, and him and his other guy, and me. And he started talking to my dad, and then he looks at me, he takes his Thompson submachine gun, which weighs like 12 pounds, puts it on my thighs and I'm for the rest of the time, I'm just mesmerized with this beautiful thing. And uh, what, but when he told my dad, he said, look, uh, we're going to hit the town in the next couple of days. We're going to take the town. We cannot afford for you and your wife to leave because they know we're cousins. If your family leaves, that was my first counterintelligence uh, lesson, you know, uh, at the age of whatever it was. And um, he said, but I, you know, I will allow your son to leave. See if you, you know, so my grandfather who was the most stoic man I ever met, took me to Santa Clara, which was the capital of, of the uh, of the province at that time. And uh, they obviously, yeah, they took over the, uh, the town with not too much resistance, to tell you the truth. Uh, I mean, there was firefights, but they, they were, it wasn't weeks. So um, when that calmed down, now they were going to Santa Clara, which is where I was at. So they shipped me back. My grandfather brought me back. And... We get to the, there's this big bridge coming into the town and it's, I don't know, 70 yards off the ground. It's got all these rocks underneath it. The water is fast moving and we get to the bridge and the rebels had taken all the planks out of the bridge. So reinforcements couldn't come in. 
So the only way to walk that bridge was, I would say, like an eight inch square piece of wood that, you know, that, that held up the bridge, you know, that, that, that kind of uh, that part of the flooring. And, and my grandfather, in typical form, he looks at me, he goes, you have to cross this. I said, yeah. He says, are you afraid? I said, no. That was BS, of course. <laughs> he grabbed me by the wrist of my right hand and I held on with my left hand. And to this day, I can close my eyes and see what was down there. It was, uh, of course, at the end, when I get to the other side, I was already happy. Wow, that was kind of cool. But uh, what I was going through, the pucker factor was substantial. So, yeah. Oh, I would think so. Now, your, your relative who gave you the tip off was really at risk of getting severely punished for giving that kind of information out, right? Right. Not only that, if he had been caught coming in by the by the uh, the government, he would have been, you know, executed, at least imprisoned. So, no, it was a huge uh, act of, of kindness. Yeah, definitely. So the incident on the bridge and here you I, I know you talk very fondly about your your grandfather and other people, other role models in your family and even in your professional career. But that bridge incident was not. That wasn't the time you actually left your family in, from Cuba, right? It happened later. Yeah. Um, you know, after that, of course, Castro took over, uh, you know, January 9th, I believe it was, of, of uh, 1959. And um, it took my, my parents getting their, um, their business confiscated to get that ball rolling, that consideration rolling. And he had already started making overtures in Havana where we could stay, where we could, what contacts we could make. Uh, and then with the Bay of Pigs happened uh, and that didn't work out, all hopes were lost. So my dad said, we're getting out of here. There was another small incident um, that is, again, uh, blood being thicker. My my uncle, my godmother's husband, was a teacher at the school that I was in in Santa Clara. Because I used to spend Monday through Friday in Santa Clara going to school and came back because it was a better school. And... He saw a list of kids that were being recommended to go to Russia to study, and my name was on it. So, and he was a communist, but he still came to my dad and said, "You can't say anything, but Enrique's name is on the on the list." So, uh, that that trilogy of the Bay of Pigs, that information and everything else, that we said we, we're leaving, and um, we applied, moved to Havana. We we were stuck in Havana for well over a year, if not a little longer. Uh, living in a hotel. I was getting tutored and um, my parents couldn't get out. And, and part of the problem, James, is that when, when you apply to leave Cuba, they confiscate everything on the spot. They freeze your bank accounts. They come to your house. They take inventory. And before you leave, they take inventory again. And if there's a silver spoon missing, you're not leaving. Really? Is that, is that severe? Well, my dad had a 59, I mean, a 57 Pontiac. And he had this and he had that. So there was a lot of people fighting. So that had been settled. So I, I, we believe that that was one of the reasons he couldn't get out because other people were getting out. So I came out through a program called Peter Pan, Pedro Pan, which was by the Catholic Church. That was originally thought that, hey, we can help some of the kids from the opposition to get them out. But then again, after the Bay of Pigs, all bets were off and, and they opened up the floodgates. And thousands of Cuban kids left in, in that way including myself. Uh, I was 10 years old when I got on that airplane for the first time. And I, I will tell you again, there, there's certain memories that, that you cannot, uh, you know, uh, ever forget. 
when we enter the airport and everybody's got guns there, all these gorillas are walking around with guns and we get into the area where we're inside, I'm allowed to take a bag that's about, you know, like three feet long and a, a foot, you know, round, some, some clothing kind of thing. You couldn't take photographs, no jewelry, nothing like that. And I remember going through the glass uh, divider, which they call it the fishbowl. And I look back and my mom was crying. I mean, totally uh, hysterical. And my dad was biting through his lip, trying not to. So um, he had told me just before going in, he said, I will see you again. So those are, that was my security blanket for the, for the, for the following time. But you know, the other thing that's really amazing is what shock does to you, even if you, if you don't know you're in it. Once I walked in there and I saw my parents and I turned around, I do not remember anything else. I do not remember walking to the plane, where I sat on the plane, when it took off, when it landed. Not until we got to Miami airport and I was physically in the airport and I saw the priest, that's when my memories kicked back in. Wow, you just, it all blacked out. It's like it, it just went away. When you told the story about your dad giving you his word, his word must have been pretty powerful because you believed it. Well, you know, I was brought up to be the little man. I mean, my dad from very early on, you know, I had a horse before I had a bicycle, you know, I had a BB gun at the age of six, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, we were outdoors, but my dad would go in the, in the, in the mountains to buy coffee or to sell the coffee. I would go with him when I wasn't in school and everything else. So he, you know, we were, we were buds. I mean, we, we would do a lot of things together. So we, we had that credibility. And um, my dad was always a man of his word. You know, that was one of the big qualities that, that I respected. So when he said that, that was something that I held to my heart for those eight months that I was uh, separated from. Him. You know, I think well, a couple of things. One is, how old were you when you actually left I, I turned 11 at the orphanage. So I was late. Uh, I was 10 years, you know, uh, you know, 10 years, 10 months or something. Nine, yeah, 10 years, 10 months. So you're, yeah. you're basically a fifth grader, you yeah. know, put it into perspective. Fifth grader, you, you need your mom and dad. Yeah. You know, you, you're attached and you're attached at home. You've got a, a family that you're very close and you're just, you're going someplace. You're, first of all, you're, your life had been in upheaval because of Castro coming in. And now you're saying goodbye to your parents. You, your father's given his word. You'll see him. But when? And you're going to someplace you've never been before. And the other thing I wanted to back up a drop, I kind of think of what would have happened had you been sent off to the Soviet Union for school. He would have destroyed my parents. Uh, my, pa my father would probably have done something stupid and not survive it. And I definitely wouldn't be talking to you. You know, I might be a KGB guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. So you you end up in the United States. And uh, where did you get off the plane? The plane docked in Miami, Miami airport, um, which was tiny back then. And um, we were, I was whisked off uh, by the priest. There was three other uh, Peter Pan kids on, on the plane, two girls and another boy. And there was a white van that took us. And the first place we stopped was a Burger King. Mm. And so my first meal in the United States was a uh, some kind of a burger. I can't remember if it was a Whopper. I doubt it. Um, and then they took me to one of the three camps that they had in South Florida. Uh, mine was, um, so it was Matacumbe. Um, I'm having a senior moment for the one that I was in. I have a few of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I get it. So, uh, yeah, I was there, but I was only there for less than two weeks. And then I got shipped 
to an orphanage in uh, Pueblo, Colorado. And it was Florida City. Uh, that's where that camp was, Florida City. And uh, so, yeah, uh, less than two weeks later, I was again on a plane, again by myself. The priest drove me back to Denver because that's where the plane took off of. So I got to see the Rockies coming and going. Now I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in Pueblo and living in an orphanage with probably four or five different cultures, at least three uh, languages, and a lot of angry kids because nobody in an orphanage is happy. Uh, you feel neglected, you feel abandoned, and all of the above. Uh, not so much in my case, because like I said, I, I have my security blanket. But, you know, James, I used to lay down and I, I used to wake up in the middle of the night because there was some kids sometimes crying. You know, I think about myself when I went away to college at 18, and I remember being homesick. I was homesick. I was an hour and a half away from home. <laughs> and I was homesick. And, you know, within a couple of days, I was totally fine. But I think you know, I was 18, you were you know, 11, and you didn't know when your parents were going to be joining you. You know, your father said, you'll, you know, we will see you again. But when was I going to be? You didn't really know. So how long was it? I mean, the good news here is that uh, you were reunited with your parents. How long were you actually in that orphanage? I was there for about eight months, eight long months. Uh, luckily, since I got there in April, the winter hadn't been really kicked in yet. So the, the weather wasn't bad. Uh, and Pueblo is a little lower than Denver and everything else. So it wasn't bad. And my parents were able to get out uh, about seven, a little over seven months later. But it took the verification process that they had a place to live and all that that was uh, arranged uh, through uh, family members that that pitched in to to help us win because my dad left owing $200 we couldn't take out a penny so he owed $200 back then to the gentleman a cousin of ours very very decent guy who really uh, helped us out so that's when I came home um, to meet my parents which again I do not recall I do not recall flying back from Denver I do not recall if my parents were at the airport or if another priest took me to my father, I, all that is blacked out. Uh, so when you say you, you were taken home, was that to Florida then at that point? Is that where your parents yeah, were? Yeah, they, they, we lived in a uh, very bad a part of uh, Biscayne Boulevard. Now it's these high rises and everything else. But uh, it was a roach and in, in mice infested efficiency, one bedroom efficiency that you had uh, one single bed and a cot. My aunt and my and my cousins slept on the little bed because they were little. They were four and five or six. And I slept in the cot and my mom and dad slept on the couch. They would put the cushions of the couch on the floor. Dad would sleep on that and she would sleep on the other. I, I mean, my office is bigger than that, that whole uh, efficiency. So that, that was our start. And of course, penniless, uh, no transportation and no, no language. And so my dad was literally mowing lawns and, and uh, loading trucks whenever he could get work. When I was reading the book, what about your dad doing whatever he had to do and your mom doing whatever she had to do? What tremendous examples you had. And your dad started to cut out a living. He started to, you know, settle there. This is where we are. This is where we're going to earn a living. So you're obviously, you know, even you've got this tiny little efficiency place, you are with your mom and dad. And that must have been a huge comfort to you. But how did it progress then from there, you know, in this place? How did you move forward, you and your family? Yeah, my, my dad, uh, by by luck, he had, he was a hell of a carpenter. My dad was an artisan. Uh, he had studied as an apprentice. 
he used to run my grandfather's ranch. So he was a cowboy. He literally roped and rode and, you know, branded cattle and all that good stuff. But once he got married with my mom, that's when he started the little coffee roasting uh, company. But he had always been a carpenter, a very good carpenter. So when he saved his money. He bought a, uh, a hand drill, a hammer and a couple of screwdrivers and, and applied in a boat, uh, a little factory. And they took him. And that was his first real paying job. But he advanced, like he started to really establish himself and you started up and it was at a public school you went to at that time? Yeah, I went to a couple of schools that were near, near the house. Um, and then we moved the first time. When my uncle came out, I was able to take my cousins and his wife and my aunt to their own place. Um, we moved into this uh, little Again, not much bigger than my than my office, but now there was a bedroom for them, and I could I slept on the couch. And uh, across the street was Corpus Christi uh, Church and school. We used to go to that church, and I got to singing in the choir. And uh, one of the priests went to my dad and he said, "We would like to offer your son, uh, you know, free education." So I went for for a year. I went to Corpus Christi with uh, you know. You know, uniform and everything else provided by by the church. So, so as you were settled in in Florida and growing up, what kind of experiences did you have with the community, and uh, how much of it were you, were you able to sort of take with you, so to speak? Yeah, uh, a lot actually. Um, my my dad was like I said, extremely hardworking. He worked two jobs for just about all the time that I knew him. My mom worked in a sweatshop for well over a decade making shirts and buttons and all this kind of stuff. You know, we lived within our means. You know, my dad was very, very proud that he never took a welfare check. He became, we became residents the day we could. We became citizens the day we could. And he never, ever, until he passed away here at my house, um, did he miss voting in an election. Wow. He felt that he had a privilege of voting. He recognized what we had. My dad was one of the few Cubans, you know, a lot of the Cubans, when they came over, this was a temporary thing. We're going back. We're going back. Once my dad settled down and started working, he goes, we're not going back because we don't know, even if that changes, how long is it going to be for? And what, what? He says, no, we're not going anywhere. So he inculcated the fact that we needed to assimilate into the United States and make it our country. Yeah, definitely. Now, just to back up a little bit, so Castro was letting people out, but yes. did that come to an end? Did he stop doing that after a while? Do you know? You know, there there were a, a, a stoppage not too long after my dad left. The freedom flights, as they would call them, were shut down temporarily. So they went on and off, but there were several periods where people were trying having to fly to Spain, for example, if they could have a Spanish passport. Because again, you know, most Cubans are... Spanish descent. Uh, they were the ones that colonized it. Uh, so they would issue, the embassy would issue some of them. And, and, and as a matter of fact, I think it was my, uh, my brother-in-law. Um, that's the way he came. He, he left via, via Spain. So now you're in Florida, you're, you're established, your family has decided we're staying here, you're in school there. Take us from, from that point to where you, I know you ended up joining the Air Force, uh, which the adventure really takes off there. That's a play on words, I guess, a little bit there. Uh, <laughs> but uh, what was life like between, say, when you were reunited with your family 
and joining the Air Force. What kind of experience was that time in your life? Yeah, you know, we, we bounced around quite a bit because my dad, every time he found an apartment a little better than he could afford, we would move. We had not much to move anyway. It was just, you know, we didn't have furniture. So these were all furnished apartments. And um, we moved in about four different places in the same area, just a little nicer each time. And then he saved enough money to uh, buy a house. Well, to give the down payment on a house, not to buy a house. Uh, in Hialeah, in West Hialeah, which was like saying the boondocks back then, the house cost uh, $12,000. Yep, a whopping $12,000. So we moved to Hialeah and shortly, you know, I went there during the summer and then the following uh, school year, uh, I was at Palm Springs Junior High, did my uh, junior high, was two years back then. Then I went to Hialeah High School. And, you know, I, uh, I was kind of goofing off in, in my freshman year, you know, discovered girls and you know, I always got good grades, but, you know, the conduct was something to be desired. So my father moved me to Miami Springs, to the school in Miami Springs by using a friend of his address that lived in Miami Springs. And, you know, I, I believe that nothing happens by coincidence. I think that, you know, we, you know, God puts his path in front of us. And if we're, uh, willing to pay the price of admission, you will end up in a happy place. And I, I can attest to that personally. But I, I met the wrong crowd there in Miami Springs. So these were the tough kids. Uh, obviously, yeah, I, I got into the martial arts when I was 15, which again, my parents were totally against. And uh, lifting weights. And I, I, I was never into pot or any of that other stuff because we were more into getting in fights and, you know, being tough and acting tough or being kind of stupid. Yeah, I mean, and, and this wasn't, you know, gangs like now that they're people shooting each other and, you know, people kidnapping and beheading people. It was just fights. You know, this group would get in a fight. You know, you had the the, the, the black community was coming through the ranks. The uh, the whites resented uh, some of the uh, blacks and the Hispanics that were coming in and vice versa. So there were, there was always, you know, you push one of the guys and all of a sudden you got eight guys in a, in a fight. So, yeah. So, you know, that, 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 um, that didn't ruin my high school because, like I said, I always had a, a fairly decent grades, but I did get in trouble a couple of times for fighting and, and that kind of stuff. So uh, I started junior college in 1971, I think, because I graduated in 70, early 71. I was in, in Miami-Dade Junior College, and there was what I call a eureka moment. I was in class. I was loving being in college. Very, very uh, important to me. And um, the hippies, this is 1970. The hippies made a notice that tomorrow they were going to burn the American flag. They were going to take down the flag and burn it. I said, no, they're not. But I didn't know anybody at college, not one. So I had to call some of my old homies who <laughs> never go to a fight no matter what. Oh, yeah, we'll be there. And so it was about, I think it was four or five of us and probably half a dozen, or, uh, a dozen and a half of, of hippies. And when they touched that flag, you know, we started swinging and it, it lasted like two minutes. So all you saw was, you know, torn T-shirts and, and beads as, as they ran off the place. But James, the, the really important part of that story is at the end of that, I looked up and I saw that flag waving in a blue sky. And it was the first time that I was proud of doing violence. Mm. I think that was the wake up call. Uh, less than six months later, I was in pararescue or in the pararescue pipeline. You know, you just walk into pararescue so. You joined the Air Force. So in the book, you mentioned you had a high draft number. You were in college. 
you could have gotten a deferment. Maybe your number wouldn't have been called. So it was kind of a tough sell to your dad. I, I didn't even tell him. I went and I enlisted. Uh, my number was, I, they would have never called me. It was, you know, the, the upper, my parents were celebrating. And I showed up, I, I think it was around October when I did the physical fit, just uh, test and all that crap. And I think in early November, I told him, you know, 26 December, I'm, I'm going in the Air Force. My mom pops on the floor. My dad is looking at me like he's going to break my neck. How could you? We lost you already. That was the thing. Oh, yeah. Lost you already once. And now you're going, you know, get lost again. And but it was done. I mean, you know, I, I, I presented it like a fait accompli. And, and um, day after Christmas, I was on an airplane, another airplane now to uh, uh, Lackland Air Force Base in Texas, San Antonio. Yeah. What's funny is your dad was was upset that you were going to do that, but you, you indicated in the book that you got, got some of that adventurous spirit from your dad, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. My, my, my dad was, uh, until my mom got a hold of him, he was a ruffian, you know, he and his brother, my uncle, actually my godfather would go to the towns out in the, you know, in the Escombride uh, towns and, you know, they go to a party and they start drinking and they're the, the city boys and far, you know, the, the campesinos didn't like that. And, my dad literally had a knife wound on his arm. My, my godfather almost shot somebody in one of these fights. So he, they were, he was rough and tumble. So, but he understood. I mean, um, after the dust settled, uh, I explained to him, said, look, you know, I, you know, this is something I feel I want to do. Don't worry. You know, I'm not going to, I'll be back. Same thing. You know, I'll, I will be back. And I enter pararescue and, you know, Air Force pararescue is one of our special operations forces. It's part of SOCOM now. The pipeline, as we all call it, in the different services that you go, you enter as nothing, you come out as a Navy SEAL, you know, Green Beret, and in my case, a, a pararescueman with my Maroon Beret. I thought I was a pretty tough fit kid when I went in there. Boy, you talk about a wake-up call. Right. Um, I think I was puking for the first week and a half that I was in. <laughs> After basic, oh. basic was a joke. But oh. when, I, when I got to pre-selection in, in, in pararescue, that was, that was serious stuff. Wow. And, you know, you, you power through it. And we had, I mean, our attrition rate is the same as all the other special services, 80%. So um, every Saturday they would have uh, tryouts and, you know, 40 people would show up and two would stay. And those two, maybe one would not wash out in, in a couple of weeks later. So uh, it was really distilled there by the time we left. Uh, I think it was there about two months after um, after uh, basic training. So how long were you in the para rescue group in the I Air did, Force? Yeah, I did two years active duty and a total of eight years in the reserves. Um, what happened was I went into para rescue because I wanted to go to Vietnam. Mm -hmm. I wanted to, to fight for my country. And I didn't put it that way to my dad, obviously, or my mom. But I wanted to fight for my country. And the only place that, that was going on was Vietnam. So I literally you know, kept asking, I want to go to Vietnam. Well, by the time I got my Maroon Beret, uh, which sits right above me there. You could probably see it. It was January of, of 73. Vietnam was winding down. And so I lasted till 1974, hoping that something, you know, would, would crop up. And it didn't. So um stayed in the reserves and I became a, a paramedic with my uh, Miami Metro-Dade uh, Fire Department. As a pararescueman, I was already an EMT too, mm -hmm. uh, with a lot of good training, not experience, but a lot of good training. So I was immediately hired. And I, even, even from um, the, the uh, fire college, I was writing rescue uh, when, when, when there were breaks. So 
in reading your book and picturing you in this power rescue, the, the adventure, the sense of adventure. And then, of course, the Vietnam War was trailing down. And then to go right into fire and rescue, you're you're doing the same sort of thing. But there's a lot of it has to do with adrenaline. Right. But not just adrenaline and the adventure part. You wanted to fight for your country. This is your home. That's right. You're proud of this home, even though this isn't where you were born, but you've embraced this country. So now you got the sense of adventure. How can you convert that that love for adventure to serving your country or serving your community, like in the fire and rescue? Right. Yeah. And I, like I said, I stayed in the reserves all the time until I got recruited by the agency. And riding rescue was was actually pretty tough. The, the, this is the 1970s in Florida. The, the cocaine cowboys were coming into uh, to prominence. Uh, there was a lot of shootings, a lot of, you know, I saw a lot of, I did a lot of good p- paramedic work, uh, patching people up and, and uh, saving a few, losing a few. You hardly remember the ones you saved, but you definitely remember the, the couple of ones that really hit you hard that you could not, could not save, or, or even though I tried. So I applied for the, um, in 74, I applied for the agency, to the agency. Because now I knew that I, I, you know, I didn't want to just be jumping out of uh, airplane. I mean, it was actually fun, but it had no purpose. I was jumping twice a week. I was scuba diving once a week. Uh, every few months, we would go mountain climbing somewhere. We'd go to the range. It, it was, but I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. I wanted to make a difference, not playing and making a difference. Uh, if that makes sense, it makes a lot of sense. Actually, so I stayed in the reserves because I wanted, I want, you know, I always had that wish that, hey, maybe maybe something will spark up that I'll be able to prove my skills and, and test my courage. But those six years that I rode rescue were also pretty intense. And and there's a couple episodes you read them in the book where, you know, I I really um, got shook by what what I had to do and and, and the uh, the end result. Uh, I applied for the agency again. I believe it was in '79 late 79. And this time they said, uh, you know, now I was a paramedic too, not only a pararescueman, but I was a seasoned paramedic of six years on the ground in Miami. So they said, look, you know, we don't have full-time work for you, but we have contract work. If you're willing to come up here, work on contract, uh, you would be helping us in the medical field. You would be helping the training when we had, you know, paramilitary training, or if a mission came up, I'm going like, you got it. So uh, that, that was my, can't say foot because it was a pinky toe, but at least they, they, they got to know me. Uh, I did a couple of deployments with them, especially with our special activities, which is our, the CIA's special operations forces. They all come from that community anyway. So when uh, 1981 came along and uh, Reagan comes in and decides that we're going to do something about this communist cancer that we had be- between Cuba Nicaragua had fallen, Salvador was teetering. The agency did not have a single native Spanish-speaking Latino that had paramilitary background. They had guys who had the language, but they were college graduates, not, you know. And then they had guys who were paramilitary guys, but, you know, they had like a two-level Spanish that ain't going to cut it. So I I, I remember clearly, I got a phone call on a Thursday afternoon. I had just come back from a seven-mile run. And when the phone rang and it was one of the guys that I had met, he said, uh, told me, says, you know, we have something you might be interested in. And I asked him, I said, I only have one question. I said, is it full time or is this also a contract? He says, no, this would be full time. I said, I'm in. He says, don't you want to know what it's about? I said, I don't care. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, literally, I was at headquarters that, the following Monday for physicals and polygraphs and, and all the other stuff. So. so when you first walk into the CIA headquarters in Langley and what that meant to you, uh, could you tell us about that a bit? Yeah. You know, it's it's an unforgettable moment because um, I read every James Bond novel ever made when in the early 60s, you know. And uh, this spy thing was always something that I was attracted to, you know, and uh, that, that kind of uh, idea. And to literally walk those four or five steps up and walking through those doors and seeing that massive seal right smack in the middle of the lobby, which I did not step on, by the way. In my 24 and a half years, I never stepped on that seal. A lot of people did. You just go back. I never did. I never could. To me, that was just holy ground, you know, uh, seeing the stars on the wall on the right hand side, seeing the, the statue of Bill Donovan on the left. I mean, that's like a photograph right here in my brain. But the sense of clean pride, you know, uh, I, I like you said earlier on, I have found a, an avenue for me to prove how that what I was wired could be wired for the good, not not for just being a street bum, you know, getting in fights kind of crap. It was an unforgettable moment in, in the beginning of a I still pinch me kind of life. Yeah. Now, I looked at some of the photographs and, of course, I read about your time in, you know, helping the Contras and there were folks that you were training. So tell us what kind of training were you providing for these soldiers? Yeah, you know, James, when I first set foot in Honduras and set, first set foot in the camps, uh, I was appalled at what I saw. I mean, these guys were in ripped off shorts, uh, barefooted, old bolt action Mausers. You would see an AK-47 here or there that they had taken from, from a dead Sandinista, but uh, it was very, very bad living. And we had 10 camps. Six of them were what they call the Spaniards, and four were in the Mesquitia, where the Mesquito, the native, they're, they're Native Americans that, that live there, uh, heavily mixed with the black slaves that washed ashore during, during the, the pirate uh, days. And so, you know, I went back and, and talking to my boss, I brought photographs and, okay, this is what we got to do. They're, they're working this at the higher level. But basically my job for the first, I was there for a little over three years. For the first 14 months in, in, uh, in that project, I was the only agency officer allowed to go to the camps because it was a black op. And that's the title of the book because black ops is when you do something that the American hand has to be hidden. And I was there as a Honduran major, uh, Air Force major uh, intelligence. And um, I would go every week, on, I would leave like four o'clock in the morning on Monday, come back either Saturday morning or late uh, Friday uh, back home and uh, I would do, I would hit two camps. I would spend two days in one camp, travel to the next one, do two days and then come back. And I slept in a jungle hammock 90% of the time that I was out there for those three years. And I loved every second of it. Yeah. I'm, I was thinking about that. So there, I'm, I'm sure there was a lot of risk to you personally, to you physically, but you also couldn't really be discovered as to who you really were. Right. That adds a whole another dimension to the risk here. It could be a powder keg, really, situation. But there was one, there's one section where you were telling about this group of Contras who were divers or fishermen or, or whatever they did. But they, they, you trained them actually 
for operations, underwater operations. And I, I thought that was so cool. And there's a picture in the book of these guys and you train them. Arguably, that's one of my favorite photographs. What happened with James was that the uh, headquarters came in with a request and says, guys, we need to do something more than raids and ambushes. You guys are doing great at this, but we need a good left hook. We need something that uh, that's going to get the Sandinistas' attention, that they're going to realize this is not just a bunch of ragtag temporary problem, that we, we're, we're here for the fight. So in previous times in the Mosquito, which I always found fascinating, because with the Spaniards, there was no culture shock for me. I spoke the language. I knew the customs. We ate fairly much the same kind of stuff. The Mosquitia was a complete different thing. They didn't speak Spanish. They didn't speak English. They spoke Mosquito, Sumo, or Rama, which were the three major tribes. And of course, they had guys who were bilingual. I had an interpreter every time I was there. So I fell in love with those guys. And uh, in one of the times I was there, I had my, my hat and I had my, my, my military scuba badge on the hat along with my jump wings. And one of the Mosquito guys who was in the photographs, he survived the training, um, came out and looked at me and said, uh, Major, are, are you a, a military diver? And I said, yeah. He says, well, we're lobster divers. I said, really? Oh, that's very cool. It was secret handshake kind of stuff. <laughs> I asked him, and that was my passion. Diving had been my passion since high school. So we got to talking. He brought in the rest of his guys. There were about six of them. And... Um, yeah, left it at that. You know, I was just impressed that these guys, they told me that they knew, they knew how to use tanks and, and all this kind of stuff. So when this requirement came up, I walked to my boss and I said, hey, boss, told him the story. I met these guys. They look hard as woodpecker lips. You know, uh, you know I, I will test them for you, but I can train them to be, you know, underwater commandos. I mean, I was a Navy certified, you know, uh, a diver. So um, we, we ran it up the flagpole. They loved it. And then my requirement was, we want to hit Puerto Cabezas, which was the closest uh, a major port on the east side of the country. And the, and the reason for that was visceral for me, because this, this is where the Cubans were bringing all the Soviet-provided logistics into Nicaragua. Okay. And Puerto Cabezas is actually a port, but it has a huge long pier. And the boats would dock at the other end and carry the stuff in because it, it was shallower on this end. So the deep end, they actually had a, a, a long pier. So my concept was, I want to blow up a pier, but I didn't know how. I went back to headquarters and said, you got to come up with what you want me to use. I train these guys. So I took these guys out to a deserted island, uh, 70 miles offshore in Honduras. Uh, we lived there for three weeks. And at the end, uh, four of them guys made the cut. And they became my barracudas. And subsequently, uh, I took them out there. We went out there together. And we blew up Puerto Cabezas uh, to smithereens. And uh, I, I will tell you, two days later, for the first time ever seeing uh, satellite overhead, that was that was pretty cool. Mission accomplished, right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Wow. So you are involved in that activity for about, you say, two to three years? Uh, just a little over three years. Right around three years. Okay. So where did you go then? Well, where did they put you next? Well, you know, I, I was blessed with uh, good bosses for the greater majority of, of my uh, of my career. Um, we're not immune to having an alpha hotel here or there, just like any other uh, group, you know. But uh, I was blessed. And this guy, Colonel Ray, was a former Green Beret, uh, who's our guy in Laos. He jumped into Corregidor when he was 18 years old. It just turned 18 years old. So this guy 
was a bigger than life kind of guy. And he took, you know, he took me under his wing and he was coaching me about what it, what it is that the agency does. And he would be tutoring me along. And then during one of the, um, the trips from uh, our, our new DCI was uh, Bill Casey, Wild Bill Casey, who was actually an OSS man. He was actually part of the OSS. He was stationed in London. He came down black with a famous, famous CIA guy named Dewey Claridge, legendary, uh, bigger than another bigger than life guy. So I get called in from the camps to, hey, the DCI, you know, I didn't know why. They just told me to come in. But when I get there, Ray says, um, you know, the, our director of the agency, I'm a GS-10, for God's sake. You know, and the director of the agency uh, wants to meet you because I used to send photos. Every time I went to the camps, I would take several rolls of photos. I love taking photos. And I would ship those back to, and, and, and uh, he recognizes. So Dewey Claridge is the one that introduces me to the DCI and he said to him says, Mr. Director, this is Alex, your man in the camps. And that became the joke. I was always, yeah, 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 you're the man in the camps, you're the man in the camps. De Dewey and I stayed friends uh, forever. Uh, when, when it was my time to leave, Ray had uh, made arrangements for me to try to get into Special Activities Division, Ground Branch, which again is our Special Operations Forces. And they they gave uh, they they gave uh, Ray a little bit of like yeah 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 we'll worry, don't worry about it send him over we'll we'll see what we can do with him and he said no so he called Dewey Claridge and told him what the story was and Dewey Claridge called the chief of, of Special Activities Division says hey John Peter whatever your name is uh, I just want to tell you that you got two hours to recruit Prado if not I'm bringing him to Latin America Division and because I wanted to go to the paramilitary side anyway I, you know that was my preference. So lo and behold, I was cheap dip right on the spot. Uh, finished my college in a year, uh, George Mason University. I graduated with distinction. Then went to spy school, uh, which is a pretty long, drawn out, pretty chaotic uh, period in your life. So, yeah. Now you're full-fledged CIA. That's right. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, the book is filled with so many adventures that you've had, that you had with the agency, uh, you know, all different parts of the world. I know you were in uh, South America, you were Central America, you were in the Philippines, and then you were also in, involved with Korean operations as well. They moved you around uh, strategically, but can you tell us just a, oh man, I think it was in the Philippines, you, you had an incident where you were being sort of tailed by somebody. And uh, it looked pretty scary. You're not sure whether they were following you to intimidate you or to to kill you, frankly. There was no doubt in our minds that these guys were out there to whack us. But, you know, it's funny because with the Contras, I literally got in some firefights because you know they, these camps are literally on the border and it's not a marked border. So the Sandinistas would raid the camps. And uh, a couple of times when I arrived there, we got shut up or so we shot back and those kind of things. And that was kind of nice to get it out of the way that, okay, I know how I'm going to act when yeah. bullets are coming this way. Um, and, and I was very proud of that. But the one in the Philippines, that's where my new training kicked in because it was all about being aware, watching what you're doing, watching, you know, what your surroundings. We were in the Philippines, we were in Davao. We had a very, very strong uh, intercept program that we were helping the army and the Navy in, in the Philippines with. And I was the guy that would go every week to a different area. Sound familiar? Mm -hmm. Again, this time, you know, we had our plane. And uh, we were in Davao with two Army captains, intel captains, 
two of my techs, and then uh, this this friend of mine, Davis, who's a Vietnam vet, and myself. So after one of the days of of, uh, of working 12 hours, whatever it was, we said, okay, let's go grab dinner and a beer. So we went to one of the local dives and we had, you know, some some food and, and beers. And But when we walked out, the two military guys, the two Filipino uh, army guys, special forces too, walked out, you know, they were just looking at their, you know, they had a watchy man taking care of their car. They had a driver. My two techs were too busy talking about the girls that they saw dancing in the, in the place. As soon as I walked out, I do one of these scannings and there's three guys and they're standing in like a teepee, straight looking at each other and they're talking. Well, there was a phenomenon there that was called the Sparrows. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the New People's Army had created this, this hit teams that were called the Sparrows. And these guys, they're modus operandi, and there's actual video of it. If you look up NPA, the video actually showed these guys, one of the guys that they had captured, how they're drawing. And what they did is they would carry the 45 caliber, the 1911 one, called 45 caliber, in their pants. Mm-hmm. And they would hold it up with their left hand, which was in their pocket. And what they would do is they would push the gun up, take the gun, shoot you through the window or whatever it was, put it away and walk off. And there were ghosts. Nobody had ever seen them. Uh, we lost two air, airmen in, in Clark uh, while I was there exactly to that MO. They walked right up to them and blew their heads off. And nobody saw anything except the heads blowing up because these guys were that good. So when I look at these guys, we make eye contact. The guy in the middle definitely makes eye contact. And all of a sudden they got three abreast. The two guys on the outside had their left hands in their in their pocket and they're they're walking straight. They're going to walk right and straight in front of us. I took out my weapon. So uh, unholster my handgun. And, you know, James, if I do this to you with, with a handgun, at least you're going to raise your hands and go, whoa, whoa, what the hell's going on? These guys did not even blink. Mm. The guy in the middle kept eye contact and he was giving me this. I'll get you next time. Look. And of course, I was given the uh, no, you're not look. And I followed him with a gun until he was now his back was to me when I went to reholster. When I reholster, I look at my buddy Davis. He was just reholstering his uh, his weapon and he was trying to light a cigarette. And because of the adrenaline, he couldn't. It wasn't fear. This guy's a combat veteran from Vietnam, you know, and I looked at him. I go, did you see that what I saw? He goes, of course, I have my gun out, too. He's, it, it was we use that. I've used that my whole career because, you know, the, the big fallacy with the agency is that we are killers, that we go out there assassinating people. And, you know, no, the kind of stuff that we have to do, the minute you pull out a weapon, your mission is compromised. We got to fly under the radar. It's got to be a black op. It cannot ever come to light, uh, at least not nor- during its lifetime. So that awareness uh, I taught through, throughout our courses, because to tell you the truth, if, if those guys, if I had not seen those guys or me or Davis had seen those guys, we probably would have been killed because you cannot react fast enough to somebody that already has a gun out on you. Uh, that's only in the movies that you, you stand right in front of the guy and, and you outshoot him. That, that's Hollywood. You know? That's Hollywood. You make a good point there, though, is that you, know, you think of a battlefield, if you're out on a battlefield and you're, you're fighting and you're, you know, with kill or be killed or what have you, but you're also protecting the operation. Again, if you're, if you're pulling the gun and you're firing, you've compromised the mission. So, but then again, you, you may get to that point where you have to defend yourself 
as a last straw, I guess. So as I, as I follow your story through a black ops, the threat to this nation starts to shift from communism and forces that are aided by, you know, other communist countries or what have you, communist forces, it shifts to terrorism, a new uh, evil out there. Tell us about how you were moved into that area in your career. Yeah, you know, it's uh, to, to put it in, in, in the real perspective here is we never stop fighting communism. Okay, that, that was always there. But the focus or the refocus was on terrorism because terrorism is a, a more imminent killer. You know, communism is a cancer, but you have years to fight it and you may be able to do, do something or other, whether you do it through intelligence or military means. But terrorism is you got to stop this right now or people are going to die. So, you know, a little bit of blinders, and that was what was really getting our attention. So I had just come out of, of my second tour, and my chief of, uh, of Ground Branch um, said to me, says, there's a job in South America that is tailor-made for you. It's a counterterrorism job. It's with the Counterterrorist Center, which had started in, in, uh, in, I was there, 86 or 88, so it started in 84, I think it was. Uh, he said, you know, you've got the native Spanish and it'd be your first terrorism slot. And again, my, the fate was there that there was a huge effort to make all our paramilitary officers fully integrated intelligence officers. Mm. When I first got in, we were the knuckle draggers, the snake eaters, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, most of our guys, all of our guys had, you know, college educations. Most of them were former officers. Mm. And um, they became this program trying to, as the world is changing, we need this rougher kind of, individual to go and learn how to work out of an embassy and all that. So that, that Latin American, um, first, I'm not allowed to say that the name of the place, but there were two insurgencies there. One was a Maoist. The other one was communist. Both were uh, narco-trafficking uh, entities. They, they supported themselves by selling the drugs to the Colombians that would come in and get it. When I arrived there in 88, both those terrorist organizations were rampant in the capital. In the capital, there were several places where we would go eat dinner, and then a week later they would burn it to the ground. We lived a, a block and a half from the American school in, in that city, and right in front of the school one day, they this guy dropped off his kids, and the the communist uh, the terrorist organization grabbed him and, and kidnapped them right on the spot for money. So it was, uh, but it was my first counterterrorism experience. I had a blast with it was very uh, as close as to kinetic as you can get. And I actually even recruited a uh, a terrorist from the Maoist organization. I actually busted him and, and, and converted him. What a challenge that was. Put all your training into one basket there and get, get that done. That's incredible. Now, I know in 1995, just to skip forward a bit, you were part of the Bin Laden Task Force. Can you talk about that transition? Yeah, again, um, luck on my behavior. I, I was supposed to go to somewhere else rather than Seoul. I had I spent 14 months studying another Asian language uh, when the the, um, the division chief called me in and said, the chief of station in Seoul has asked for you by name for a very sensitive program. He wants you to be the same position you were going to, liaison chief of liaison with both the local services and our military 
And he says, but we know you've been through language. You ha I had a two level in, in a very hard language. He said, it's not binding, but I have to ask you. And, and I said, well, sir, I only have one question. He said, can you tell me a little bit about what the program is like, what the program is about? He goes, I can't. And I said, I'll take it. Because with all my clearances, if you cannot tell me about this program, that's where I want to be. So I come home and tell my wife, hey, I've been studying this for 14 months and now we're going to Korea. So I landed in Korea, did my, my 93, did my two years there, and then came out back to the counter-terrorist center. I was a branch chief. I had the Palestinian branch. And uh, lo and behold, I get called by the then chief of ops that says, hey, your, your name has been uh, raised to be deputy chief of station. Immediately, my, my antennas go, whoa, this is cool stuff. This is cool stuff. And he said, uh, we're building a, a virtual station that is going to be targeting one individual, one terrorist organization. I said, well, well who are we going after, boss? He goes, Osama bin Laden. And I go, who? He goes, exactly. I didn't know what a virtual station was because they had never done that. A virtual station became an idea, a guy named Fred Turco. And the concept was have a station dedicated to a topic, to one challenge. Keep put it outside of the building so they don't have to operate through the building. You have the freedom, just like a station. You know, a station doesn't have to coordinate stuff with headquarters. You send out whatever you want to send out to the world and to headquarters. So this virtual station, that was the deputy chief of station, and it was the Bin Laden task force that became known as Alex Station and was the name that was created. The, uh, the chief was Mike Scheuer, who was a senior analyst. He was already an SIS officer. And I was the senior ops officer and, and the, uh, the deputy chief of station. We focused on within within six months, we had a hundredfold more information on Bin Laden than, than we had before we started the task force, because now we're tasking all the stations, making trips. And I think the biggest to, of note during that period was that Osama Bin Laden was in Khartoum, Sudan. Mm -hmm. And a, a very, very dear friend of mine, a legendary Green Beret by the name of Billy Waugh, was the head of surveillance and counter-surveillance for Colfer Black, who was the chief of station and subsequently would be my chief of the center. So um, I was in conversation, cable conversations with the station. Billy Waugh was, he had, he had made book on Bin Laden. He had a safe house on a roof, you know, some shanty town taking photo. The first photographs the agency saw that were originally taken by us was Billy Waugh in, in Khartoum and him being a Green Beret of Vietnam fame, uh, new operations. And he, he he would tell us, he would write it up. He says, guys, we can get this guy. We can actually duct tape this guy out of here. We can come in and do a rendition. We don't even have to kill him. It'd be easier to kill him. Uh, and that's my recommendation, but you know, we could also do this. Unfortunately, uh, even though we were getting tons of in intelligence of the financial support that Bin Laden was providing to terrorist groups via his extortion of other Saudi families, and the fact that he had camps that he was sponsoring that were training terrorism because we had overhead of these things. Right. The administration never gave us the green light to, to go after him. And there were several opportunities to, to really get him. You know, it, it's a shame, James, because it's kind of like if you could have shot Hitler in 1937 kind of thing. You know, um, 1996, when I was doing this, and he's in Khartoum, um, the coal had not happened yet. The uh, embassy bombings in Africa are two embassies they are simultaneously hit in Nairobi and uh, Dar es Salaam. 
And of course, 9-11 most likely or maybe not happened. All those lives. But what you're saying is the United States, the presidential administration was not allowing that to happen at the time. Yeah, you know, my my understanding was that we were, because we were briefing our seventh floor, you know, our our agency management, uh, and they were telling us they were carrying the water, but what always came back, well, we need more information, we need more proof. In other words, they needed to see that he actually had killed people, and and that's exactly what happened. But even then, I mean, you figure the coal happened, and um, we still were trying to get him, uh, but the the fortitude, the termination was not there. That's hard to think of because we were he was right in view. He was right there. I mean, first of all, in cartoon, he was in his turf. He was what we call in the white. He was not threatened at all. He thought he was totally immune to everything because at the time, Khartoum was a terrorist haven. Uh, if you paid money, you could live there and nobody, there's no extradition, blah, 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 blah. You were paying off. And, and as a matter of fact, a, a side note of that is Billy Waugh, the guy who took the photos and, and devised the plans to get bin Laden is the guy that discovered that Elish Ramirez, a.k.a. the jackal mm. of renown of the 70s terrorism in Europe, was in Khartoum. And he put glass on him. He was able to take photos of him. And uh, we turned him over to, uh, to the French. We didn't have a legal tender on them because he had not killed Americans. But he had definitely killed some French. And uh, we were able to turn him over to the French. So Khartoum was, was a happening place. And, and Bin Laden, he would drive his own car. Half the time he was driving by himself, he would go here because he was totally protected or so he thought. You know? Now let's let's go to September 11th, 2001. Where were you that day and when you actually found out what happened? Yeah, I, I took over uh, as chief of operations for the counter-terrorist center in uh, 2001, May of 2001. Uh, I had been in that radical Muslim country that we that I call Shangri-La because again I'm, I'm not allowed to talk about it. So I came. I was chief of station in Shangri-La with a pretty meat-eating team, and um, I took over from Hank Crumpton, who was a very good friend, as chief of operations. You know, that's that's the number three guy in CTC. Mm-hmm. You know, I had Kofor Black, Ben Bog, and, and and Rick Prado, and we had a senior FBI guy also. So it was four. Our front office was four people. And, um, you know, I was waiting for Kofor to get off the phone to go talk to him. I was outside his office when, looking at the TV, we saw the first plane hit. We didn't think it was an act of terrorism. You know, it was bad footage. Uh, the initial footage, it was just, it looked like a little plane getting into the building. I'm going like, my God, this only happens in movies. What the heck is this? Yeah. But, you know, CTC, the counterterrorist center, is the first entity in the agency that brought in representatives from every federal agency. We had Secret Service guys, we had DEA guys, we had diplomatic security guys, and we had an FAA guy. Mm-hmm. And he came out to me immediately and he said, hey, chief, we got a problem. I said, what's up? He goes, we have four planes that pull their emergency signal, but they're not responding to our callbacks. Uh, we think they're compromised. Not even 30 seconds later, here comes the second plane and, and hits the towers. The chief of staff for Kofor was standing about three feet away from me when that happened. And I looked at him, I go, first thing you do is get a cable out to every station in the world. Tell them, number one, watch your six. This is not an independent attack. Number two, we need every sourcing we can get to find out what the hell happened here and who made it happen. 
After that, it's all a blur. Uh, you know, phone calls and meetings and this and the other. And the fact that they came in and they said the building has to be evacuated because there was a third, one of the planes was still out there. Uh, you know, one hit, you know, the two hit the, the towers, one hit the Pentagon, the other one was flying still in the air. Nobody knew where it was. So the government buildings started being uh, emptied out. And uh, when George Tennant, who was our DCI at the time, made, made the call, everybody leave the building and call back and goes, no, we're the counter-terrorist center. We're staying. Anybody who has to go take care of their family, whatever, that's I'm fine with that. But we're, we're going to keep a presence here. And, and that began, began that legend of, of Call for Black. I mean, he was a bigger than life guy. You know, I, I, I believe God puts us all into where we're supposed to be. Kofer was director of CTC at that time because that's where he was needed. Wow. I have a lot of good friends. Jose Rodriguez, a dear friend of mine who replaced him. But I just think that that Kofer had that, you know, I this is my war. And I'm not going to let this happen. I'm, I am going to avenge this. So um, there were very energizing moments because, you know, we started growing in, in masses. Uh, the, the meetings were incessant. The operational ideas uh, about how to go to this and the Taliban and how we get boots on the ground into Afghanistan was just a whirlwind kind of kind of uh, weeks, you know, for for all of us. I mean, I used to go home every third day. I would sleep in my office. I had an air mattress that I would sleep in my office, bring extra clothes. I would shower in the in the in the gym, and uh, you know, eat at the cafeteria. So, as a matter of fact, the first day, the first night when we were there, uh, we had nothing to eat. So our chief of logistics for CTC took a, one of those big trash cans that has full of sand and threw it through the window of the, of the cafeteria, broke into it and came out with carts and carts of roast beef and ham and whatever he could get his hands on to feed the troops that, that had remained behind. That kind of set the, the example, though we're not leaving, yes, we'll break into our own buildings in order to feed our people. And, and the adventure started. You know, I think all of us have seen that video clip of President George W. Bush receiving the word that, in effect, you know, a second plane had hit the tower and um, you know, we were under attack and that look on his face. I think about the look on your face and the feeling in your gut when the gentleman from the FAA told you about the other planes that were not responding, that, you know, you're thinking, we're, you know, we're going to war here. This is changing. Everything's changing. Everything that we're doing. Yeah, you know, and, and we at the center already had a, a, that optic because, you know, a lot of people have the misconception that intelligence is like a puzzle and you put all the pieces together and you go, ah, so this is what's going on. Well, it's a puzzle, all right, but half the pieces are missing. So we knew that that Al-Qaeda, the base, was up to something, something big. The amount of communications chatter was elevated. People that we were surveilling, because we're surveilling people all over the world that were part of this effort, started going underground. All these kind of hints that, hey, they're, they're, they're stepping up for something. We just didn't know what it was. But we had that optic that there's, some, there's, a, big, there's a big shot coming. And we were working very hard to try to get to the bottom of it. But it's, it's, like I said, it's not, it's not an easy task. Oh, absolutely not. I can't. We, we definitely had that mentality that, uh, you know, we're in for a fight soon. And that was, that was the ring of the bell, you know. That was it. The bell rang that day. And uh, you talk about that time in the book and it builds the suspense and you, you know, the reader feels like they're right there with you 
just to take us beyond that time, I know uh, toward the uh, end of the book and towards the end of your career in the in the CIA, you were involved in sort of a, a maybe the forming of a new organization that was sort of being pitched to leadership as a way to combat this terrorism. Could you just tell us a bit about that, Rick? Yeah, well, uh, we were in a meeting, Kofor Black, uh, Hen Crumpton, and myself, and uh, I mentioned to Kofor, I said, hey, boss, you know, we're, we're kicking butt in, in Afghanistan. We're, we're hurting the Taliban. We're hurting the, you know, the Al-Qaeda. But there is a whole bunch of really bad guys worldwide in non-war theaters that we need to be looking at because those are the support mechanisms to, a, to the terrorist organization. And that's the one thing that I learned in my first tour in, in, uh, in Latin America was the fact that the soft underbelly of any organization, illegal organization, is the support mechanisms because they have to have a, a public persona. You cannot be a support person hiding in a cave in Afghanistan. So you are in a first world country or a second world country getting funds, getting medicines, providing transportation, providing documentation, whatever it is, you're an essential person. So Kofor looked at me and goes, well, you're chief of ops, fix it. And it was a Friday. So I spent the weekend, literally yellow pad, going through my ideas. Monday, I, I showed up and, and, and I briefed him and he loved the idea. And then he said, um, now you just need to find me a senior office to, to lead this. And I said, I already got one. He goes, who's that? I go, me. He kicked me out of his office. Get out of my office. You're my chief of ops. You're not, you know. So I came back in the afternoon with Ben Bonk, who was a dear friend, his main deputy. And we talked him into letting me uh, take, take over. And the concept was actually pretty straightforward. And I'm very happy that at least they let me talk about the fact that we conceptualized this and we actually brought it to a reality. And, and I'll tell you what the, what the end uh, game was. But the idea was to make book on terrorists from different organizations. By making book, we're talking about the establishing patterns of life. So is where do you go in the morning? What routes do you take? What car do you drive? What bars do you go? What girlfriends do you have on the side? What, what drugs are you into? Whatever it is, and come up with three operational plans where we can neutralize that individual, whether it's by compromising him, putting stuff in his car and calling the cops, not it. Um, you know, rendition, we've done renditions. And the third, um, not outside, it would be if we had to kill him, kill him. But here's the concept. Now, let's, let's take Hezbollah for, for example. Hezbollah had killed more Americans before 9-11 than any other organization in the world. 247 to, to be exact. Let's say the Hezbollah was, we were getting the same chatter in Intel that they're up to something. Well, what do you think would happen to an organization where three of your senior support mechanisms get neutralized in three different parts of the world? You're compromised. You hit the brakes. You go underground. You got to you got to reboot. So that was the concept. It was not a, a like you know it, when when it finally leaked because it did leak and, and it was pretty pretty bad the, the leak. It was uh, CIA's hit squad, mm. which first of all is an insult because it was not that. But this was not a punitive operation. This was a disruptive organization. It was only 12, about ten or twelve of us, including analysts. So. You know, the impetus for us to go out and make book on these guys, we did it. We we were out there and did this. And I briefed, they allowed me to say that. I briefed the vice president of the United States, Dick Cheney, and Condoleezza Rice at that time. And he gave us the green light. He says, this is exactly what we need. So you come back when you have it all sewn up. And he looked at uh, George Tenen and he says, 
you come back to me just before you, you're ready to do this. And then we'll brief Congress and, and, and the right people in Congress, he said, uh, the key people in Congress, and we'll get you a green light if, if everything is up to par. So we, uh, we came up to, we had two operations that were very solid. One of them, I actually demonstrated our casing in uh, the photography that we did on this target. And I showed him that the actual video on a small camera. So he gave us the green light and the idea was to go forth and prosper. So we came up with two target packages that we were ready to act on. One in one country, the other one was in a different country. Both bona fide bad guys we knew. One was Al-Qaeda, the other one was uh, something else. We had incredible planning for it. Uh, we had done all our homework. And when we briefed them, uh, they, they didn't catch on. The, the first one, they said, well, we're, we're, not, we're not ready for that one yet. And then the second one was the, the straw, straw that broke my back, uh, was a very well thought out, very well executed operational plan in, 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 uh, in surveillance on this really, really bad guy that deserved to be taken out of, out of, out of commission. And uh, I briefed George Tennant and I briefed uh, Jim Pavitt, who was the, the DDO, the director of operations. The ADCI was there and the division chief that was sponsoring that target was there. Uh, a very dapper individual, multiple languages, a very, very, a very good friend. And I briefed and the DDO says uh, to the director, says, Mr. Director, there's no doubt in our minds that Prado not only can pull this off, he can get away with it. Mm -hmm. I'm going like, ah, you know, this is like <laughs> yeah. the angels are singing in my ear. You know? yeah. and Michael is handing me the sword. And then <laughs> I will never forget those words. He says, however, sir, we need to consider the political ramifications of this kind of action. The chief of the division got up, closed his notebook, walked out. A week later, he retired. So I went back to Jose Rodriguez, who's a very dear friend of mine. He was he had taken over for Kofor. And I said, boss, this is what I just what just happened. You know, this is the second time we spend months working on this stuff. We have him down to a gnat's butt and we, we can't get the green light because of political optics. And he said, well, you know, you're just hanging there. I said, Jose, I can't. I got pick of the litter. James, my five operational guys, four of them ended up being SIS-4s, and my deputy ended up being an SIS-5. Cream of the crop. I had the pick of the litter. Mm. So I told, I told Jose, I said, look, yeah, we're having fun repelling upside down, throwing flashbang grenades and shooting stuff and doing surveillance in all kinds of parts of the world, but that's not a career unless we're being used. I guarantee you none of my guys would have ever left that team, or me included, if we would have been allowed to act, but I couldn't do that. That was my leadership job was realizing that we had become a paper tiger. There was something that briefed really, really well. Uh, but unless we get another 9-11, we're not going to, we're not going to do it. So I broke up the team and, and shortly thereafter I retired. Yeah. That again, that's another adventure you take the reader on. And then of course, when you retire, that was also a, I'd say an interesting or emotional moment. Very. Because You've, you've lived this incredible life from 11 years old and all of a sudden you're, you're retired and you're, you're sitting in the backyard of your house and you're, you're having a, a couple glasses of wine and you're sort of reflecting upon there's some disappointment in, in what happened at the end. And yet 
you start to then think more carefully about all the people that you've met and the people who have influenced you and the people who've inspired you. And tell us a little bit about that. And, but don't give too much away because I want people to, <laughs> we want to read the book, right? I want them to read the book. Yeah. Thank you. That's important. Yeah. What, what, what basically happened was when I decided to retire, I, uh, I went to work for uh, MITRE Corporation, which is a, for not-for-profit. I was one of two CIA guys in the whole building. I was bored to death, but uh, I needed to decompress because I had been going hundred miles an hour for three years. You know, I already, I knew that I was getting a job. I, I, I had no doubt that I was going to get picked up by somebody, but that day that you're talking about, I literally sat down and went through day one of me walking into the agency and separated the good memories to be kept and disposed, literally mentally throwing them into a trash can. Because the big message that resonated in my ear from whoever my guardian angel is, was you cannot afford to be bitter about the career that you have and about the agency you work for. 24 and a half years most of my cognitive grown-up life. So I, I was very proud of what I did throughout my agency career. I was uh, very proud of what I tried to do even more. So I could not allow these spots, these black spots to become a cancer because I knew a lot of, a lot of guys that had retired and they were bitter. They were bitter against the agency. They were bitter that they were not taken care of or that they didn't get that last assignment or whatever it was. And, and I promised myself I wouldn't allow that to happen. And that's the process that I describe in the book. I think I, I've gotten more feedback on that episode than just about anything else. Uh, yeah, you know, the, the Puerto Cabezas is real sexy and, and the, the, the sparrows in, in, uh, in the Philippines is really sexy. But I think that there's a, a certain closure that a lot of people have told me. He says, you know, I, I wish I would have seen this you know, five years ago when I retired or others that came back and said, you know, I'm retiring. This helps me a lot. So, yeah. You're right. I mean, I think anybody, anybody could read that or, or many people, at least people my age and I'm in my sixties now. And, you know, you think about sitting and reflecting on your career. I certainly did not have anything close to your career as far as adventure and excitement, but we get reflective and say, look, you know, am I going to be bitter or do I appreciate the people that were put in my path? And how did I grow as a person? I grow in my faith and my, my knowledge and my love for my country and things like that. I, I just wanted to really end with this. Why did you write the book, Rick? That's an excellent question. And it's a, a very important question. You know, I never thought of being a best-selling author. That moniker never, ever crossed my mind. Uh, and there's people that do. People, there's, oh, someday I want to write a book and, and, and you know, that kind of stuff. That, that was never my thing. First, when, when, my, uh, when my programs were leaked after the fact, with my name, front page, as an assassin squad, I had no fig leaf. You know, I, I was Rick Prado, CIA counterterrorism, and supposedly, allegedly, this head of these, these, these head squads. So, um, now I had to be able to, you know, be out there. I, I was out there no matter what, started Googling and, you know, th this would come up. So I was working at Blackwater. This I only lasted like four months at MITRE. Uh, then I went to work for Blackwater as one of their vice presidents doing the same thing. My, my title was director of special government programs. Go figure, right? 
And uh, I brought Kofor in because Kofor wanted to retire and Eric Prince wanted somebody like Kofor. So I recruited Kofor to come in. So Kofor and I would talk all the time and I would always complain about the reason. The reason is how our agency is portrayed in the media and especially in Hollywood. 99% of the movies out there are operations officers are alcoholic, womanizing, drug selling, assassins, doing things that Congress doesn't know about. And then the agency is hunting them down to keep a secret because, you know, only the president knew and, and he's not going to, you know, that kind of stuff. And, you know, it, it paints my agency in a really bad light. And it paints even more, it pains me to see what it does to my colleagues. You know, uh, we got 139 stars on that wall. And more than a th about a third of that is after 9-11. That means there's people on that wall that I knew. There's people on that wall that I helped send where they were going. And I developed yet another debt of honor. I've said, I owe it to these people that have sacrificed a lot more than me because I'm here. They're not. For their kids and grandkids to have something viable. You read my book. My, my, my book is not meant to make the agency look good. There's black eyes there, and I call them with their black eyes, but it is real operations, real successful operations, real sacrifices by real patriots, men and women that we have in our ranks that have dedicated a lot, and some of them even their lives. That's why I wrote the book. I honestly wanted to get the word out there, and, and I'm very proud that the book has done very well, uh, number seven in the New York Times bestseller list because that's what I wanted. I wanted to get that word out. So little Johnny that goes to mom and dad and says, I want to be a CIA operations guy. They don't take him to therapy. Yeah. They understand. Oh, oh, geez. So this is what you want to do. So that, that was the impetus for the, for the writing of the book. Oh, well said. And I know that the book had to go through a review from the agency. Six uh, months. Oh, six <laughs> months. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is good, which is good. And uh, I would have done it any other way. I know you wouldn't. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was very exciting. I wanted to mention quickly another hero in your book, your wife. Yeah. Your yeah. wife, a hero, because she's you know, by your side and you'll read the story in the book, but she's uh, she was amazing. And uh, her story is absolutely. In and thank you for that, James, because um, I, I couldn't have done what I did uh, and raised my family at the same time. But I was also blessed with the fact that my wife is also Cuban born mm -hmm. and she lived communism longer than I did. She didn't leave till 1969. So she was 10 years in, in communism. She was a little kid when it happened, but nonetheless, because she's a little younger than I am. But she understood what the consequences of not fighting these kind of battles were. And um, she never asked me what I was doing. I always told her, I've told the truth. I'm a CIA officer. I had to tell her that we're going to Korea. And this is what I'm going to be doing. But the incident with the sparrows and the bombing of Puerto Cabezas and the rescue in Corinto, she knows about that now because she read the book. <laughs> so that's not, not only is she a trooper, yeah. but, um, she actually tolerated that vacuum of, you know, uh, of, of information that um, that she wasn't getting. So, yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much, Rick. This has been an absolutely 
wonderful interview. I've learned so much about you and this, uh, the agency, and you talk about those stars uh, on the wall, you know, those were sacrifices made for our country, the, for the security of our country. Uh, and I want to thank you and uh, the, the other agents who did and do make that happen for us in this country, keeping us safe. And I want to highly recommend Black Ops, The Life of a CIA Shadow Warrior by Rick Prado. And you are the uh, retired CIA counterterrorist chief of operations, which I understand is the equivalent of a two-star general in the CIA. I was, a, I was an SIS too, which by protocol is, is equated to a two-star. Yeah. Well, I hope you enjoy what you're doing now and any, any projects uh, that you're working on now. Horseback riding, motorcycle riding, and spoiling my wife. <laughs> that sounds like a plan. Not in that order. <laughs> no, not in that order. Rick, thank you again. God bless. And um, I hope your book continues to soar on the New York Times bestsellers list. Thank you very much, James. Thank God bless you, too. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. You can connect with us on Facebook and YouTube at Your History, Your Story, or on Instagram and Twitter at YHYS Podcast. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.